Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be covering Justin Martyr's belief about who God is, uh, the attributes of God, Justin Martyr's background, and we're going to be covering some tangential theology held by Justin Martyr. It's important he's an early church father. I have early Christian writings pulled up. It gives a little brief overview of who he was. He's a second century Christian. His apology is dedicated to the emperor Antonius. He had quite a few apologies. Um, I believe two are currently still in existence and others have gone lost. It says his apology may be dated internally from the statement in chapter 6 that Christ was born 150 years ago under Serenius. Since Quinarius entered office in the year 60, according to Josephus, the apology may be dated to the year 156 CE. So it's about 100 years after Jesus. It's interesting that Justin's talking about his background. And he's Greek. He's he's a philosopher um, by a hobby by trade, uh, he goes around and he tries all these different schools of philosophy until finally he is directed to the Platonists. And he talks about this in his dialogue with the Jew, Typhro, and he states basically that in his pursuit of Platonism, Plato taught him to look for God as incorporeal. And so one day he's attempting a Platonic ascent and he meets a Christian. He goes to this field. He thinks he's going to be all alone to sit and meditate and reach his uh, transcendental state to view God. And he's interrupted by this uh, Christian individual who they then have some sort of dialogue. And uh, he is ultimately convinced of the Christian uh, position after this dialogue. But it's interesting that he was a confirmed Platonist. He was a confirmed uh, Platonist uh, interested in the Platonic ascent. When he describes Plato's philosophy, he talks about that as the end goal, the Platonic ascent to see the one. So he, he's a true Platonist. He understands Platonism. Uh, he, for the most part, seems to understand Plato's philosophy. And so he's a very good early witness about the theological situation during the second century AD. And so it's just interesting to study him on those facts alone to see what he says and what his arguments are, who his audience is, and who what his audience believes at that time. And Plato is very much in fashion. And you see that even in his interaction with this unnamed old man Christian during his attempt to reach his Platonic ascent, the old man Christian starts talking in terms and categories such as God's uh, unable to change. He, he's, he's unable to be degraded into parts. This was a pretty prominent thought that it, it manifests itself all over the works of Justin, Justin Martyr. So he's bringing these concerns, uh, these common concerns at that cultural time into his flavoring of Christianity. So I have this book, The Complete Works of the Church Fathers, and it has uh, various works of Justin Martyr, and I will be using that today. That's the most convenient way to highlight various things that he does say about God. In his first apology, he says this. Let's, let's uh, scroll up just a little bit. And often out of vessels of dishonor, by merely changing the form and making an image of the requisite shape, they make what they call a god. And we consider not only senseless, but to be even insulting to God. Idols are insulting to God. 
who having ineffable glory and form, we, we get some concerns here, Justin and form. To Justin, God does not have form. When he's confronting uh, the Jew in his dialogue with Typhro, he criticizes the Jews for believing God does have form. God has arms and legs. And so all those instances in the Old Testament in which God is interacting with people, it can't be God the Father. It has to be Jesus in in Justin's mind because anything else is blasphemy, basically, giving God form. He says, having ineffable glory and form, thus gets his name attached to things that are corruptible and require constant service. You see these concerns coming out. Change equals decay. Change equals imperfection. The most per perfect is the things which do not change. Uh, ineffability. Ineffability is uh, briefly touched upon here. It's touched upon again and again in his works. God cannot be effable. You can't say positive things about God. You can't say things that are meaningful about God. God is pure substance. God is unbegotten and all unbegotten things share the same substance. No change. No change. No name. They're inconceivable, ineffable. We get hints that uh, Justin Martyr believes that God perhaps knows all things in the future. We get this in several instances. Uh, we, we could deduce it from the fact that he thinks God is unchanging, that God can't uh, have a variation, that uh, he's unrelatable. Uh, he, he can't have predicates, basically. Uh, additionally, he talks about God in such a way that God is timeless. He seems to adopt timeless aspects from Plato's Timaeus. He says that Plato is correct in the things he said about that. And he describes in one passage how God creates days, and that's creating time. And so he, he equates these days with the creation of time itself and seems to adopt Timaeus, which is fairly explicit in considering tensing of verbs to be uh, not a thing in relation to God. God is tenseless. God doesn't isn't subject to time. Justin Martyr seems to be adopting those those aspects. So when he talks about God knowing things beforehand, uh, he he does you there the window might be open. Uh, if not, if not for uh, the other things we know about how he sees God, he says this. Whence we become more assured of all things, he taught us since whatever he before foretold should come to pass is seen, in fact, coming to pass, and it's the work of God to tell a thing before it happens, and as it was foretold, so to show it happening. So it's not quite explicit about God's knowledge of the future. Uh, God's prophecies do come about, Justin is stating, and uh, it fits his other theology and definitely, but this is this is addressed to the Greeks to try to prove to the Greeks that God is who He says the prophecies come true. That's His immediate point, and so it might not. Uh, it's it's not a statement that goes too far one way or the other to give us useful information. But taken in whole, it does add to our evidence. Next, I got this uh, highlighted for they proclaim our madness to consist in this that we give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all, who they did not discern the mystery that is herein, to which, as we make plain to you, we pray you give heed. 
And so a few things are going on here. He's talking more about the unchangeable and eternal God. Uh, we could deduce that this eternal is a timeless eternal from other statements. It's not explicit here. And unchangeable we can deduce from other statements about decay, about having parts, about simplicity. These are the values that he's bringing. And, and the criticism here is that uh, they proclaim our madness to consist in this, that we give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God. He talks about Jesus in a way that might be unsettling to modern uh, theologies of Trinity. Uh, Jesus is always subservient. He's secondary. He describes Jesus like a fire. So God's like a fire and a fire could start other fires. And Jesus is like this other fire that is started from a primary fire. The primary fire does not change and it's all one substance, but this new fire can be spawned from the original. And so to, to Justin Martyr, Jesus is always the begotten son of God. That's, that's pretty common terminology there. And his uh, dialogue with Typhro really talks a lot more about Jesus. And there's people who make uh, different cases. There's people who try to defend that he holds modern hypostatic union concepts of the Trinity. And, and that's all well and good. But his dialogue about Jesus seems to understand the fact that Jesus and God are different persons. They're, they're, they're individuals who can have a conversation with each other in such a way that they're unique. And uh, yeah, that's that seems uh, about accurate, but it, that probably doesn't jive with how some people want to see the Trinity and the hypostatic union. And so he might be on hot waters with some of the things he says. He has a statement here about Matthew 19.12 that uh, all our works and our thoughts are open before God. We, we Our thoughts are read by God. And that seems pretty common fare for the time. Later on, he describes God as the unbegun and impossible God. That language just reaffirms kind of the ideas that we've been talking about. Impossible, ineffable, unknowable. Next, we have highlight for the reason why God has delayed to do this, his regard for the human race. For he foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance, even some even that are perhaps not yet born. And so his idea about God is that um, perhaps perhaps we could read this as God knows individuals. He knows who will be born and how they're going to act. He is a big believer in free will. So he's not a Calvinist in any respect. He talks about people being able to choose good and bad. He talks about our bodies don't control us to force us to do good or bad, which is funny. He's not a believer in original sin that I, I could tell. Uh, he believes that we have volition and we have choice and God has some sort of simple foreknowledge that uh, can see our free will decision actions. You know, God's timeless being apparently in his theology. And so it, it works not with a Calvinist meticulous control, but with a standard Arminian knowing what we're going to choose because he sees what we are going to choose. Elsewhere, he describes this, for sometimes he declares, that's God, he declares things that are to come to pass in the manner of one who foretells the future. Uh, that's an indeterminate phrase, and so it could go either way. But taking in a whole, it uh, might add evidence to the fact that 
And Justin Martyr holds that standard Platonist theology of God being timeless and simple and outside of time and, and unchanging and, and not acquiring new information. Possibly, possibly. And in the way he foretells the future could be maybe like a crystal ball. Like you see the future and so you could tell because you have seen the future. That's possibly what is going on there. Later on, we get the interplay, the, the problem between knowing what's going to happen and fatal necessity. Here we learn his views about how free will works with foreknowledge. But lest some suppose from what has been said by us that we say whatever happens, happens by fate necessarily, or by, by fatal necessity, because it is foretold as known beforehand. This too we explain. We have learned from the prophets, we are told it to be true, that punishments and chastisements and good rewards are rendered according to the merit of each man's actions, since if it be not so, but all things happen by fate, neither is anything at all in our own power. For if it be fated, then that this man be good and this other evil, neither is the former meritorious nor the later to be blamed. And yet again, unless the human race have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions of whatever kind they be, but that it is by free choice they walk both upright and stumble, thus we demonstrate. This is interesting. He's not a Calvinist. He doesn't think God controls all things. He believes in standard uh, justice, that we are judged based on our volition, based on our actions, based on our choices. If anything forced us into those choices, then we wouldn't be accountable. That'd be a violation of justice. Justin Martyr is not a Calvinist. He believes in free will. He believes that people have power and volition to choose either good or bad. He doesn't seem to be an original sinist either. I don't think he believes we are fated to evil. There's another interesting phrase later on in which he states, And that God the Father of all would bring Christ to heaven after he has raised him from the dead and would keep him there until he has subdued his enemies, the devils, and until the number of those who are foreknown by him as good and virtuous is complete, on whose account he has still delayed consummation. And so apparently in his theology, there's a set number of individuals whose God is waiting to fulfill. And this might be a reference to the words in Revelation in which there's certain numbers that are stated that go to heaven or hell or whatever. But it could be also be, maybe he's not referencing that. Maybe, in fact, he's saying that God knows the future and wants a certain number and is waiting for that number to actualize. Justin Martyr's language is inconsistent about God. So he'll talk about God as being impassable and unmovable and not subject to passion. But in other other instances, he'll talk about God being patient or God uh, being pleased. And uh, so it's the normal inconsistencies one would find in someone merging Platonistic ideas with Christianity, where they're not both true. And uh, sometimes uh, Justin Martyr explains that uh, the language is used for the benefit of the hearer rather than to to display accuracy. It's funny, he defends Homer against Plato, and he states that Homer was using language about prayer in order to inspire people to pray correctly, in order to pray for things to happen rather than to be bogged down by fatalistic necessity, which which Plato's system necessitates uh, having a timeless God. And uh, so, 
So he, he's criticizing Plato's criticism of Homer, saying that Homer really agreed with Plato and uh, Homer was using uh, pleasing language to affect results in the audience, but secretly, secretly was a Platonist along with Plato, along with Justin. And so Justin does recognize the use of language that's condescending, the type that uh, Calvin, Calvin would say is in the Bible that just speaks to human intuition but is not accurate. And so it, it appears that he understands and utilizes it and doesn't believe the language that he himself uses, but uses it for rhetorical effect on his audience. That, that seems to be his mindset. Just think about the mindset someone has to be in to say that Homer didn't believe the things that Homer was saying and Homer actually believed the things that Plato was saying and that Plato was wrong for criticizing Homer about those things because Homer or because Plato didn't realize Homer's secret intentions that aren't explicit in the text. And all of them agree with Christianity and and Justin Martyr. Just think of the mindset Justin Martyr has to be in. To, this is his worldview. And it's really funny to read his accounts of ancient philosophers and how he tries to harmonize them. Oh, Socrates actually was a secret Christian. He had secret Christian tendencies. He believed in the real God because he's Socrates. Plato had a lot of good things going for him, and he secretly believed in part very accurately about who God is. There's only slight differences, slight differences, and there's reasons for those differences. Uh, Plato's just misreading Moses because Moses is, of course, to Justin Martyr, the primary inspiration of Plato. So all of Plato's views have to be derived through Moses, and he criticizes Plato's views for being inaccurate summations of Moses. He says, Plato got these views from Moses, but he misunderstood them. So he said this thing that was dumb, and here's the real thing. So Plato, he's a dumb guy. Uh, he just misunderstood Moses, and Moses, you know, we, we got the truth here. And of course, Justin Martyr's takes on what Moses is saying are out there and absurd. A lot of his writings do come off as very contrived and absurd, especially when he's trying to prove the antiquity of his own religion. Yeah, the religion of the Jews and Moses's and all the, not, not Moses, but Plato's reliance and all the philosophers' reliance on Moses. He comes off as very much absurd. Uh, there's, there's also... A tendency in his works to talk about eternal conscious torment. It's not explicit in all the passages, but you you get hints from the things that he says. He talks about uh, send those of the wicked endued with e eternal sensibility into everlasting fire with the wicked devils, and then they shall repent when it profits them not. He seems to believe in a hell that's uh, eternal conscious torment. And he has a passage where he quotes uh, Greeks who have similar ideas and says, look, that, that they affirm these ideas that the Christians agree with. The, this idea of a hell in which there is conscious torment, people try to escape because they are going to be tortured. So if, if anyone's interested in that debate, that's where he falls along 
that line, that trajectory. Here we go. That Plato borrowed his statement that God, having altered matter which was shapeless, made the world. Here the very word spoken through Moses, who, as above shown, was the first prophet and of greater antiquity than the Greek writers. I would going on, so that both Plato and that they who agree with them and we ourselves have learned, and you also can be convinced that by the word of God, the whole world was made of the substance spoken of before by Moses. So Plato Plato really relies on Moses's for all Plato's ideas. Plato can't have an independent thought that's not derived from elsewhere. Anything that where Plato is wrong is a misunderstanding of Moses. He read Moses and he said, oh, that, that's accurate, but he just misunderstood. And so the things that Plato is saying is just misunderstandings of Moses. Also, also, Plato never mentions Moses's name because everyone hates uh, Moses in his time, and he doesn't want to be killed like Socrates was. And so this this is the world of Justin Martyr's mind. This is how he perceives this world. Later on, we get another uh, statement about ineffability, for no one can utter the name of the ineffable God, and if anyone dares to say that there is a name, he raves with a hopeless madness. So in Justin Martyr's mindset, names give uh, some sort of significance, some sort of practicality, and the lesser can't name the greater. And so if I have a dad or something like that, I can't be naming my dad. Or if there's something better and bigger than me, I'm not the one naming that thing. That thing names me. There's a priority of sources for names. And that priority is that the greater names the lesser. And so in this fashion, anything that God tells us about himself is a practical naming rather than actual name. A God himself has no name. And then he talks about Exodus 32, which we did have a previous episode about the LXX, the Septuagint in which we have these various translations. And the LXX that the Greeks were using was a bad translation that the Jews didn't use because it was less accurate than like the Aquila translation, for example. There's there's other better translations. And Exodus 32, we focused on directly because that was a very important point in the LXX where I am who I am or I am who I will be as some Greek translations rightly and correctly translate the passage, the LXX states that I am the one. And Justin Martyr actually takes this passage and he makes a big deal about it, that I am the being. So let's let's listen to some of the things he says here. And all the Jews even now teach that the nameless God spoke to Moses, whence the spirit of prophecy, accusing them by Isaiah the prophet mentioned above. Now we're going to scroll down. We're actually skipping to the second apology of Justin, uh, which he states this, But to the Father of all who is unbegotten, there is no name given. For by whatever name he be called, he has as his elder the person who gives him the name. But these words, Father and God and Creator and Lord and Master, are not names, but appellations derived from his good deeds and functions. And his Son, who alone is properly called Son, the Word, who was also with him and was begotten before the works when at first he created and arranged all things by him, is called Christ in reference to his being anointed and God's ordering all things through him. This name itself, also containing an unknown significance, is also an appellation. God is not a name, but an opinion implanted in the nature of men of a thing that can hardly be explained. God is ineffable. These ineffable concerns are Platonic concerns. They are not Christian concerns. 
And so he's he's adopting these concerns for himself. He also thinks that in Proverbs, when Proverbs talks about wisdom and the wisdom creating, he, he believes that is a reference to Jesus. Remember, the Gnostics thought that wisdom was actually a deity. I think I think it's a personification of a concept. It's an extended metaphor, but uh, to each their own. Some people affirm that the Proverbs is actually speaking about Jesus. That is Justin's position here. We're going to talk a little bit more about free will because that, that's an order of the things we're coming across, the, the phrases in this second apology. But neither do we affirm that it's by faith that men do what they do or suffer what they suffer, but that each man by free choice acts rightfully or sins. Okay, makes sense. Calvinists might say yeah, he could still agree with us. There's a way to read that in which he's still a Calvinist. Okay. But since God in the beginning made the race of angels and men with free will, they will justly suffer in eternal fire the punishment of whatever sins they have committed. And this is the nature of all that is made to be capable of vice and virtue. Oh, they're capable of virtue. For neither would any of them be praiseworthy unless their power to turn to both. A virtue advice. And so things are not praiseworthy unless we have the power to turn to either. Yeah, that's that's not a Calvinist uh, virtue right there. For if they say that human actions come to pass by fate, we're moving on, they will maintain either that God is nothing else than the things which are ever turning and altering and dissolving into the same things, and will appear to have had a comprehension only of the things that are destructible, and to have looked on God himself as emerging both in part and in whole of every wickedness, or that neither vice nor virtue is anything which is contrary to even sound ideas, reason, and sense. This is a criticism of God controlling all things, or God being all things. He's criticizing the pagan philosophers who believe that God has a part in sin. He's criticizing Calvinism here, in which uh, fate is by necessity, and uh, God can do nothing, God is nothing, and uh, works pretty much sim simultaneously, synonymously, with with the normal workings of the universe, God creates this wickedness and he is criticizing this idea. He's not a Calvinist. Later on, he talks about Socrates and how Socrates was really kind of a Christian. For no one trusted in Socrates as to die for this doctrine, but in Christ, who is partially known even by Socrates, for he was and is the word who is in every man and who foretold the things that were to come to pass through both the prophets and in his own person when he was made of like passions and taught these things. Not only philosophers and scholars believe, but also artisans and people entirely uneducated, despising both glory and fear and death, since he is the power of the ineffable father, not the mere instrument of human reason. Ineffable father again, and uh, interesting side note to Socrates. Socrates is really, really Christian. You know, he's one of us. Later on, he talks about having the unbegotten and ineffable God as witness to both our thoughts and deeds. So his, his visual language where God is watching could probably be that, that way of speaking like he already described in which you're playing to your audience, but you don't believe those things in a changeless God, a God that doesn't have parts, a God that doesn't have passion. So he probably is believing in this idea that God is timeless and doesn't sit and wait and patiently watch. And he just uses that language for convenience sake, because that's what his audience is familiar with, identifies with, understands. He's tricking his audience. 
We already talked about his conversion story. He was a Platonist. Uh, there is uh, interest in these, these statements he makes about the Platonists because he says their fame was great. Uh, he, he talks throughout as if the Platonists were the pinnacle of philosophy. Uh, he agrees with them. Uh, even his detractors agree with Platonistic concepts. This Christian that he comes across actually talks as if Platonistic concepts are correct here. Here's the old man, old Christian man, meets Justin as Justin's trying his Platonic ascent. He says, you are right. For what reason has one for supposing that a body so solid, possessing resistance, composite, changeable, decaying and renewing every day has not arisen from some cause. So whatever is changeable has cause. Uh, something that's not changeable doesn't have a cause. So God the Father can't be this changeable uh, substance that can vary in any way, have things acted upon it to move it, or else it is changeable. It is degradable. It's, it's, not, it's not the ultimate God. And he, uh, Justin Martyr, he describes uh, Plato's philosophy as stating this. I love his statements where he talks about what Plato believed because it's a far cry from what some people believe that Plato taught because they're not reading Plato with an eye for nuance. They're, they're taking all Plato's words kind of on face value and not reading between the lines of what he's actually describing. So Justin Martyr actually does walk through the process of where he gets that Plato teaches some of these things. And it's, it's a good, he's a good read to see an interpretation of Plato that seems plausible. For that which is unbegotten is similar to, equal to, and the same as that which is unbegotten. And neither in power nor in honor should one be preferred to another. And hence, there are not many things which are unbegotten. So he's talking about simplicity. There's only one simple substance. For if there were some difference between them, you would not discover the cause of the difference. Though you searched for it, and after letting the mind ever wander to infinity, you would at length be wearied out. Take your stand on one unbegotten and say that this is the cause of all. So this is him representing Plato's philosophy in a positive light to be adopted by Christians as well. Later on in this dialogue with Typhro, he criticizes Jews for believing God has body parts because if God had body parts, he would be decayable, he would be corruptible, and he would not be God. But we're going to skip past this dialogue and move to his next work. We're to the hortatory address to the Greeks in which he describes Plato and Aristotle. For these, they say, have learned perfect and true religion. So he goes through the differences between Plato's philosophy and Aristotle's. There seems to be some misrepresentation of Plato and some ungenerous readings of Plato uh, as opposed to Aristotle. But Plato, he, he appears in this uh, discussion to give a higher place than Aristotle. Of course, Plato is the darling of the early Christian church. They all love him. But Plato, though he accepted, as is likely, the doctrine of Moses and other prophets regarding the one and only God, and Plato's a monotheist in, in Justin Martyr's mind, which he learned in Egypt, yet fearing on account of what had befallen Socrates, that he should also rise up but some Ananias or Miletus himself against himself, who should accuse him before the Athenians and say, Plato is doing harm and making himself mischievously busy. So basically his idea is uh, Plato is a monotheist. 
you just have to read his work with a critical eye and Plato just feared the masses. He feared what happened to his mentor and so he didn't speak about it openly, which does make sense and it, and it sounds accurate. And there was that letter from Aristotle to Alexander the Great that talks about the secret mysteries that are not explicit in their writings. And that, that letter could be spurious spurious but it does make sense it does fit with the theology and mindset of the time having a secret mystery religion having secret mysteries that are only initiated to those in the inner circles we're not dealing with a religion whose goal is to be as transparent as possible you don't get that until christianity comes along you have paul saying here are the mysteries and he writes them out you, you don't find that elsewhere Chapter 21, The Namelessness of God. For God cannot be called any proper name, for names are given to mark out and distinguish their subject matters. Oh, God doesn't have distinctions, so he's, he can't have a name. Interesting. Because these are many and diverse, but neither did anyone exist before God who could give him a name, nor did he himself think it right to name himself, seeing that he is one and unique, as he himself also by his own prophets testifies when he says, I, God, am the first, and after this, and besides me, there is no other God. That's a reference to Isaiah. Uh, later on, he says, But by a participle, he mystically teaches them that he is the one and only God. For, he says, I am the being. Now, this is a translation coming from the LXX. This is not from the, the Hebrew manuscripts. This is not present in the Hebrew manuscripts. And it's not present in the better Greek translations that's available to Justin Martyr at the time. The translations that the Jews actually preferred over this uh, spurious LXX. Remember, Origen goes over these different translations and he points to these other translations as being better than the LXX. He, he talks about the problems. He talks about problems in New Testament manuscripts as well. And so that's an interesting, interesting episode that is well worth re or listening to and uh, seeing what's said. Because, because look at this critical doctrine that he is getting from a Platonist-inspired translation of the Bible. I am the being. This is Exodus 32. This is God saying, I am who I will be, according to Rabbi Sachs. And, and according to some Greek translations available to Justin Martyr at that time. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. He takes this as, I am the being. And for him... I am the being means the same thing that Plato talks about. Later on, he says, For Moses said, He who is, and Plato says, That which is. But either of the expressions seem to apply to the ever-existent God, for he is the only one who eternally exists and has no generation. And so he is associating this Exodus, uh, not 32, Exodus 3 account. He's, he's associating this Exodus 3 account with Platonic metaphysics. And a lot of Christians do this in uh, systematic theologies. They'll take Exodus 3, I am who I am, and they'll actually say, oh, see, this is pure actuality. This is pure existence. God is stating all these Platonist metaphysical concepts. And Jewish rabbis, Rabbi Sachs says, this is his telling Moses that he gets to be whoever he wants to be. He's not going to be held down by our definitions, our desires. It's not a metaphysical statement. It's a statement about a relationship to a people. In context, he talks about liberating Israel from their oppressors. He will be who he will be. 
Yeah, he's not going to be held by Moses' request for a name. God, what's your name? I am whoever I want to be. That's that's what my name is. That's going to be actually my name to all generations. That is my name. But to Justin, God has no name. Later on, another another reference to the Exodus 3. For being charmed with the saying of God to Moses, I am the really existing. Oh, the really existing. And that that that's that's what he's getting. He's that's an LXX translation. And accepting with great deal of thought the brief uh, participle expression, he understood that God desired to signify to Moses his eternity, and therefore said, I am the really existing. For this word existing expresses not one time only, but three, the past and the present and the future. And then he talks about Timaeus. I don't know if it's directly right here, but he, he cites the Timaeus concept of time. Justin Martyr seems to believe that God is timeless. Down below in this chapter 27, Plato's knowledge of the judgment, we get another reference that indicates that Justin Martyr believed in eternal conscious torment in hell, in which he quotes the pagans correctly ascertaining uh, the full penalty of being evil. There, there's a pit and the, the wicked get pulled to the pit and they bitterly protest and they try to escape. It's not annihilationism that he's teaching here. Chapter 33, and from what source did Plato draw the information that time was created along with the heavens? For he wrote thus, time accordingly was created along with the heavens in order that coming into being together, they might also be together dissolved if their dissolution should take place. So he seems to adopt Plato's ideas of time and represent them as accurate. He says Plato got these ideas of time from Moses. Of course, everything Plato believes Right or wrong comes from Moses. Anything that's wrong that comes from Moses is a misunderstanding of what Moses believes. Plato's just a Moses acolyte in Justin Meyer's mind. And so timelessness is, is a quality that Justin Martyr seems to apply to God. And guess what? These Greeks, uh, some of them are probably in hell right now. Since it is likely enough that they themselves are now lamenting in Hades and repenting with a too late repentance, and if it were possible for them to show you. So he's basically saying that there, there is a Hades, there is eternal conscious torment, and some of these people who are currently suffering eternal conscious torment uh, would actually try to advise you to do other things than, than what you're doing currently. So Justin Martyr, I think we could definitively say that he does believe in eternal conscious torment hell. I mean, there could be counter-arguments, could be counter-arguments, but I... From what I'm reading, that's everything that's indicating that much. So we move on to his work on the sole government of God. We get more language about God being everlasting, unchangeable, ineffable, uh, that they should worship unchangeably him who knows all things. There's a statement. It could be a, a exhaustive foreknowledge, ungenerated knowledge. It could be that. You could make other arguments, but... Taking it in conjunction with timelessness, taking it in conjunction with ineffability, with simplicity, probably not. Probably more of a classical notion of knowledge. And when we move to the work on the resurrection, I think what's interesting is that he's dealing with people who have Platonist objections to the flesh being risen again. The flesh decays. The flesh falls apart. Change happens to material creatures. So how can we be immortal when we rise again. This is this is a real 
question of the time. It's a question that he has to address both pagans and Christians alike to try to convince them that things that can change can be immortal. And he, he does rely on Plato, some somewhat, because Plato also talks like that. Moving on to fragments from Justin, we get a little bit of uh, his sense of impassibility. We shall not injure God by remaining ignorant of him, but shall deprive ourselves of his relationship. There, there's quotes that apparently I didn't highlight where he does talk more about um, God being impassable. We can't move him. We can't uh, injure him. He's in need of nothing. These types of statements, these are Platonistic values that he incorporates. Moving on to his martyrdom, I have highlighted this phrase, not so because the God of the Christians, this this is Justin talking, the God of the Christians is not circumscribed by place, but being invisible fills heaven and earth and everywhere is worshiped and glorified by the faithful. So is this a physical omnipresence that he's describing? Is it a power omnipresence? Is it just a general omnipresence where he can be everywhere kind of but not really or in a realm above or not applicable space and time it's omniscience in some fashion that he's explaining in this trial so this was just a quick overview of the works of justin martyr uh, looking at some of his phrasing looking at some of his ideas yeah, i think it's fairly safe to say he was an acolyte of plato he valued plato's works his input uh he he goes through a lot of mental troubles to frame everything Plato b believed as derivative of Moses. In that way, he justifies to himself his Platonistic beliefs and ascribes them to Moses. But he does hold Plato in high regard. Uh, he, he cares about Platonic values such as changelessness, such as ineffability, such as timelessness. Um, omniscience doesn't quite register. He doesn't quite have any real discourses, but safe to say it probably goes along with the ideas of simplicity that we have seen him delineate um, and ideas such as impassibility where God cannot be affected. God doesn't gain from outside himself. These, these doctrines, although not necessarily explicit in a lot of things he says, comes across in his description of God's primary attributes. And the primary attribute that they're concerned about is change, decay, degradation. Anything that could change, anything that has decay, anything that has parts that move can degrade. There's something greater. Uh, the, the things with moving parts are moved by something without moving parts, he says in one place. There, there's this primary, simple, unchanging, timeless mover pushing all things. This is Justin Martyr's theology about God. Anyways, questions, comments, criticisms. Maybe you think uh, Justin Martyr didn't believe these things. You want to make a case otherwise. Put those down below. Start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.